June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customize paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. We're ICU doctors, we're used to pressure, we're used to seeing a lot of things that normal people don't see. Tonight, you will see what frontline healthcare workers are dealing with. Doctors we spoke to called it war against the virus. So we have what's called phase one. And the U.S. military is now deployed in New York. This is an unbelievably complicated situation. This is a catastrophe. Whether I'm talking at NASA or I'm talking with the NFL. Professor Brene Brown is a best-selling author and podcaster. Your books would be in the self-help section, I think. That bugs the crap out of me. Why? I don't think we're supposed to help ourselves. I think we're supposed to help each other. I don't think we're supposed to do it alone. So what are her thoughts on the pandemic? Just part of what you'll learn tonight. Some of the most exciting talent playing basketball in America today comes from Africa. Celtic center Taco Fall has fans in love with his, well, upside. But in a year-long investigation, 60 Minutes has found that it's not always easy for these young athletes. Many are deceived with false promises of education and of basketball riches. We found this man at the center of a number of suspect dealings. 
We talked to a lot of kids and a lot of people that have yeah. said if you let them down, talk oh, about no. that. Oh, no. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. For 149 years, ADT has made the security of their customers a top priority, so you can have peace of mind that your home is protected. Now ADT professionally installs Google Nest products to help keep your home safe and smart. You'll be able to check in on your home and manage your security system from virtually anywhere. Plus, with Nest Cams and the Nest Doorbell, you can get intelligent alerts, so you'll always receive notifications on what matters most. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. Google Nest Cam and Nest Doorbell are trademarks of Google LLC. ADT. Brilliantly safe. The surge of coronavirus patients is beginning to overwhelm hospitals in the world's new epicenter, New York City. Other hot spots are growing from coast to coast, but New York State has nearly half the known cases in the U.S. For more than 80% of patients, the symptoms of the disease, COVID-19, tend to be relatively mild. But the small fraction of seriously ill patients is forcing a national mobilization. In New York City alone, hundreds have died. The battle is being fought in the city's intensive care units by a front line of critical care doctors and nurses. Tell me about the battle you're fighting. It's hard. We've, we're ICU doctors. We're used to pressure. We're used to seeing a lot of things that normal people don't see. But this is really beyond anything I've seen in my career. Dr. Gould Zaidi has been a critical care specialist nine years at Long Island Jewish Medical Center in Queens. There's no time to sit, let alone eat or do simple things like take bathroom breaks. Um, we just keep going. And it's essentially one room to the next. When was the last time you slept? I don't know. I don't remember. When was the last time? Probably before this exploded like this. Dr. Mangala Narasimhan is chief of critical care at Long Island Jewish Medical Center, one of 23 hospitals in the Northwell Health System. I have uh, 18 beds in one ICU full of people uh, on ventilators, completely sedated, uh, unable to open their eyes or interact or talk to their families. And we are feeding them through tubes, and we are um, completely keeping them uh, paralyzed so that we can properly ventilate them. Uh, it's um, our sickest patients, and they're in every single room of our ICU. The pictures in our story were shot for us by hospital staff. By the end of this past week, New York City hospitals admitted more than 5,000 COVID-19 patients. At Northwell Health Hospitals, about a third of COVID-19 patients go to intensive care, often suddenly. Very quickly, within hours, they walk into the hospital talking or into an urgent care, and 12 hours later, they're on a ventilator fighting for their life. Is that unusual? Very unusual, very unusual. We don't see that course and progression like this with any other disease that we deal with. How long are they staying in the ICU? 
much longer than our normal patients are. Normal patients, we have three or four days of ICU stay and they leave. These patients, and this is consistent with China and with what Italy is seeing, take about two weeks on a ventilator before they can come off, if they come off. Before coronavirus, critically ill patients often had last visits with their family before being sedated and intubated, the insertion of a ventilator tube. But now, because of contagion, families aren't allowed in the hospital. Dr. Eric Gottesman of North Shore University Hospital on Long Island helped a patient say goodbye remotely. I could tell that he was going to need mechanical ventilation to be intubated. Um, we, uh, I talked to his wife on FaceTime. We FaceTimed him all together, and then his wife saying goodbye to him. Very touching. And he, he's still intubated. Yeah. And there are lots of, lots of stories like that. Lots of stories, FaceTiming and saying goodbye. We watched as temporary morgues were set up in tents and 45 refrigerated trailers were made ready, enough space overall for the potential of 3,500 bodies, about a 1,000 more than were lost at the World Trade Center on 9-11. Have you had any patients leave the ICU yet? Yes, we have. We uh, needed those wins to keep going because we were getting very depressed by what we were seeing, but we've had some wins recently, and patients have come off ventilators and uh, are doing well. The youngest patient you've had on event so far is how old? 21. How's that person doing? It's my one big win. Uh, got off the ventilator and is doing really well and uh, is uh, our hope. It's just the sheer magnitude of patients that are coming in. The influx, not just into the hospital, but into our ICUs, is beyond anything that we've seen before. We're doing our best, but it feels like wartime. That war was joined by the military at the request of New York's governor. I flew up to see Governor Cuomo, and he showed us the curves when he thought it was going to be worst case. Lieutenant General Todd Simonite commands the Army Corps of Engineers. He's leading a team building a 2,900-bed hospital in Manhattan's convention center. Across the city, the Corps is creating hospital space in hotels and vacant buildings. We don't have enough time to do this the normal way. This is an unbelievably complicated situation. This is a catastrophe. We can't have a complicated solution. So what we need is a very, very simplistic concept, what I call the good enough design. But if we try to do any more than the good enough, we're going to miss the window. So I'm telling my guys, you don't have the time to do it exactly the way everybody wants it. You've got to get it done by when that mayor or when that governor says, here's my absolute critical peak. I've got to have it done by then. The convention center hospital opens this week. So we have what's called phase one. Patients who do not have COVID-19 will be transferred here to free up beds in regular hospitals that are becoming virus-intensive care units. General Seminite has plans nationwide. We are concerned about New Jersey. We're very concerned about California. We're very concerned about Washington. Yesterday I had one of my two-star generals in Illinois, worried about the Chicago area. We're worried about that. I talked to Governor Edwards the other day in Louisiana. So those are probably the big six. But that doesn't mean that the other 44 aren't going to get the same level of treatment. And you are anticipating retrofitting not just hotels but sports arenas. We are. One of the ones we're doing in Seattle, the concept right now, is going to Seahawks Stadium. And we're basically going to go in there, not out where the football 
battlefield is. But you know all the space down underneath where all of the different concessions are? A lot of great space. Army medical teams have arrived at the convention center. A Navy hospital ship will dock soon. April will be worse than March. May will likely be worse than April. That's Democratic Mayor Bill de Blasio told us that he spoke to the president three times last week about military reinforcements to help relieve the city's frontline doctors and nurses. And they are not going to be able to sustain this pace. And we need to bring in a whole new group to substitute for them and give them a break and keep building out our capacity. If we don't get a lot more medical personnel quickly, even if we have the equipment, it won't be enough. Where do you get them? We've got to take every person who works in medicine, regardless of what they do, private practice, any kind of medicine, we need to mobilize them. We're going to have to be very strong using all the legal powers of the state and city uh, to mandate it because it's getting desperate. In Manhattan, message boards beg on the street for recently retired health professionals to help treat patients. Thousands of retirees have responded. So we did about 2,000 tests yesterday. Mike Dowling, the CEO of Northwell Health System, is also counting on those at the beginning of their medical careers. The medical school's graduations were to be happening in two months. They will happen quickly, so we'll assign those medical students that were graduating to the hospitals as well. You're accelerating this class of medical school graduates. Yes, and they're going to get uh, an experience that will be wonderful for their continuing education. Dowling is preparing for equipment shortages. Masks are being reused, and ventilators known as vents may be pushed beyond their design. You can, under certain circumstances, take a vent and put two patients on a vent. That helps, uh, but we need more vents because you can turn any bed into a ICU bed if you have the ventilators. The need for ventilators is acute because of the surprising nature of the disease. We have lots of people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s that are sick and are on ventilators and don't have a lot of medical problems. So it, while the older people definitely fare worse, the younger people are also not spared. Have you found a common denominator for why some patients crash so precipitously? We do think that there's some trends towards obesity, that patients who are obese seem to do uh, worse, and men definitely more than women. Men seem to have about a 60% chance of doing worse of those people who do worse. Uh, so there are some trends, but not enough for us to pick those patients out. In Italy and other places, we have seen rationing of care. Yes. And physicians such as yourself having to make a decision who gets a vent and who doesn't. Are we approaching that? We are preparing for that in case we do approach it. I hope that we don't approach it. Um, I think we have to think about things like that because of the numbers of people that are coming in. And what are the answers? They're difficult. Uh, they are going to be based on um, probability of survival, um, how much is the ventilator going to help this person? At least one New York City nurse has died of COVID-19 infection. There have been spot shortages of protective gear, but Dr. Zadie says there is enough at her hospital for now. We're all scared. I'm scared, but I have to lock those fears away in a box because once I set foot into the hospital, it's all about the patient. So we try to be cautious, we try to use the protective equipment, 
but it's not perfect. We all know that. But this is what I do. It's my job, so I do what I have to do to help these people. Ellie Sisopo, a critical care nurse practitioner at North Shore University Hospital on Long Island, may have said it best. It's very scary and very real, but the camaraderie that I've seen, I've never seen before. When I'm home, I want to be there. And it's a feeling that I've never had before. It's like, okay, when you can't wait to get out of work because it's a busy day and everybody's sick and you just want to go home. But now when you're home, you just want to be at work. Dr. Samir Kanijo of Long Island Jewish Medical Center in Queens told us family is a source of strength and worry. I have a wife and a daughter. Um, we have a whole elaborate decontamination uh, process when I get home. What's your decontamination process at home? I go straight home. I don't pick up my daughter from her, um, her daycare. Um, I get home. I go straight into the shower. Clothes go into a bag take a shower, everything that was with me gets either lysol or Cloroxed, and then I go and I clean my car. To those who question whether businesses should be closed, whether entire cities or states should be locked down, you say what? You have to keep it locked down. The influx already is so much that if this continues, there's no resources in the world that'll be enough to deal with this and contain this. And um, we have to keep it locked down. Anything else would be irresponsible. That's taken seriously in America's most densely crowded city. More than 8 million people appear to have nearly vanished, imprisoned in apartments by the shutdown of schools and businesses. Police have orders to break up gatherings, but judging from Fifth Avenue, the cops could stand some company. Still, the extreme social distancing measures have not yet slowed the spread. New York's hospitals may be a preview of what's to come as more cities join the battle. I would like to say to the public, the healthcare system is resilient. We will handle this. And it's important for people to understand this. You don't quit. You don't retreat. You don't put up the white flag. You are going to win. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Brene Brown has a PhD in social work and is a professor at the University of Houston. For her research on human behavior and emotion, she has conducted tens of thousands of interviews with study subjects and amassed reams of data. She could easily have spent her career in the academic ivory tower, but Brene Brown chose to do something that's rare and dangerous in academia. She made her work popular, translating very rigorous scientific research 
into very human stories about relationships, parenting, and leadership. She just launched a popular podcast, and every one of her books is a bestseller. Her plain spoken lessons have particular resonance in these days of anxiety and disconnection. Your books would be in the self help section, I think. That bugs the crap out of me. That bugs the crap out of you? It totally does. Why? I don't think we're supposed to help ourselves. I think we're supposed to help each other. I don't think we're supposed to do it alone. We all want to be better, right? Isn't that what you're helping people do? Yes, but my message is clear that you don't have to do it alone. We were never meant to. It's not self-help. We're neurobiologically hardwired to be in connection with other people. Renee Brown spends a lot of time building connections. To her huge social media following, millions follow her on Facebook and Instagram. And now through a new podcast called Unlocking Us. And I'm not sure about you, but this is my first effing global pandemic. She launched the podcast just over a week ago as impacts of the coronavirus swept across America. We don't know how to do this. And by this, I mean we don't know how to social distance and stay sane. We don't know how to stay socially connected but far apart. We don't know what to tell our kids. We're anxious. We're uncertain. We are, a lot of us, afraid. And let me tell you this for sure, and I know this from my life. I know this from, again, 20 years of research and 400,000 pieces of data. If you don't name what you're feeling, if you don't own the feelings and feel them, they will eat you alive. Within a day, Unlocking Us became the most listened to podcast in America. Millions of people are feeling very vulnerable right now, and vulnerability is what Brene Brown has been studying for decades. We asked thousands of people that question, like, what is vulnerability to you? The first date after my divorce, trying to get pregnant after my second miscarriage, starting my own business. To be alive is to be vulnerable. A lot of people associate vulnerability with weakness. Definitely. Bad mythology. Vulnerability is not weakness. It's the only path to courage. Give me a single example of courage that does not require uncertainty, risk, or emotional exposure. No one in 50,000 people, not a person has been able to give me an example of courage that did not include those things. Hmm. There is no courage without vulnerability. That message has found a receptive audience in an interesting place, the United States military. Uh, sometimes I'll say, have you heard of Brene Brown? I'll say, no. I'll say, let, me, let me kind of walk you through this. Air Force Colonel Dee Dee Hafill, who's currently the spokeswoman for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, first encountered Brene Brown's work when she was a squadron commander in Iraq. She's now been trained and certified to teach Brown's techniques to other military officers. Society is changing, and what society needs from its leaders is changing. It needs leaders who can have really hard conversations around things like race, sexual assault, suicide. So to say you get to be a leader who doesn't talk about feelings, that's not possible anymore. I can hear people saying, mm-hmm. an, an officer in the Air Force, someone who's you know fighting a war, is not supposed to feel vulnerable. You're not supposed to talk about your feelings. Vulnerability is the birthplace of courage. And courage is not doing something because you're fearless. 
courage is doing something because you may be afraid and you do it anyway. The most vulnerable people I know are the toughest people I know. Hmm. They're just not posturing, blustery, tough. They're real tough. So finish the sentence for me. If you are courageous, uh-huh. there's a 100% chance that... There's a 100% chance you'll get your ass kicked. You will know failure and setback and disappointment. It's guaranteed. Guaranteed. Brown says she has plenty of proof from her own life, particularly early in her academic career. I could fill this room with rejection letters. Like, I couldn't get anything published. She had to self-publish her first book, titled Women in Shame, in 2004. But longtime friends Karen Walrand and Laura Mays remember that Brown's confidence and ambition were always ferocious. I said, what do you want to do in five years? What's your end goal? And she was like, what I really want to do is start a global conversation on shame and vulnerability. I was like... I want to be an astronaut ballerina. (laughs) That is how crazy it sounded to me. But anyway, never before or since have I ever asked the question and someone came back with such a decisive decisive and outlandish answer. I want to talk to you and tell some stories. Something happened in 2010 to help make Brene Brown's goal less outlandish. She was invited to speak at TEDx in Houston, a small satellite conference of the now-famous TED Talks. Am I alone in struggling with vulnerability? No. In that 20-minute talk, Brown displayed some of the humor and humility that have since become trademarks. You know how there are people that, like, when they realize that vulnerability and tenderness are important, that they kind of surrender and walk into it? A, that's not me. And B, I don't even hang out with people like that. And I remember afterwards she came and sat down and she said, how did I do? And I said, I think you just changed your life. She had. In a Netflix special last year, Brown remembered that when the TEDx talk was posted online, it immediately caught fire. So I watch it and it's like three people, four people, five million, six million. And there's this day, you're like, yeah, you're like, woo. And I'm like, Um, That's the difference. That TED Talk became one of the most watched ever, now viewed nearly 50 million times. Just after giving it, Brown says she came across a quote from Teddy Roosevelt, which still hangs in her office. It's not the critic who counts. It's not the person who points out how the strong person stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done it better. The credit belongs to the person who's in the arena. Why is that so profound to you? Because there are so many cheap seats in the world today Hmm. full of people who will never, never go into the arena. Like online critics? Yeah, faceless, nameless, who will never start their own business or try to do something. When I met Brene, I showed her a card I'd been carrying in my wallet for, at that time, 22 years, and it's the Theodore Roosevelt quote. And I received that card from a wing commander when I was a second lieutenant. Mm. And that card represented for me everything I wanted to be as a military officer. I wanted to do the hard things. I wanted to step into the arena, but I wasn't. And getting into her work and understanding that work allowed me a language to know why. So what is the biggest lesson, not just military leaders, but uh, say corporate leaders should learn from Brene Brown? 
that this is teachable, that courage is a teachable skill, and we need it. She may not like the description, but this fifth-generation Texan has become a brand. All the best-selling books and the podcast. And let's welcome Brene Brown. Legions of devoted fans. How are y'all? A new center at the University of Texas, her alma mater, to teach her leadership lessons and endless speaking engagements. Whether I'm talking at NASA or I'm talking with the NFL. When it's a talk to NASA employees, she does it for free. For a big company, she charges up to $200,000 a speech. Because here's the bottom line. Why you? What, what has clicked? Why are people listening to your message? I think it's just being truthful. Your lessons, your message is based on data. It's not just you sitting up there saying, oh, I, I think this, I think that. This is all data-driven. It is. It's frustrating because I don't, the data don't say what I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> I want vulnerability to be an intellectual pursuit. I don't want it to be about feeling and emotions and vulnerability. And the data says? It's about feelings and emotion, vulnerability and self-love and how you talk to yourself and self-kindness and self-compassion and stuff that I'm not great at, naturally. (laughs) Brown and her husband Steve, a pediatrician, have been married for 26 years. Also a native Texan, he wasn't interested in an interview, but was happy to show us around Lake Travis where they have a vacation home. On that boat ride, Brown told us about a momentous decision she made not long after they were married. I was in my last semester of graduate school and I had to do a geneogram, which is like a, it's like a map you draw of your family where the lines mean different things. And and so I called my mom and I was like, hey, can you help me with this geneogram over the phone? She's like, dead, cirrhosis of the liver, dead, alcohol. You know, I was like, oh my God, shake my family tree and the drunks fall out. Like, what's happening here? So I just said, that's it. I just, you know, I quit smoking and quit drinking and... On the same day? Same day. Brene Brown speaks and writes very openly about her sobriety, her marriage to Steve, and how they have parented their daughter and son, who are now 20 and 14. But especially as her fame grows, there are limits, too. Brown calls them boundaries. Comedian Amy Poehler gave that idea a funny twist when she invited Brown to do a cameo in the movie she directed, Wine Country. You're not going to believe who's in this restaurant. You'll never guess. Cher? No, 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 no. Ready? Brene Brown! (gasps) Brene Brown! Of course, they can't resist interrupting her dinner. How can I be generous in my assumptions of others when I hate most people? Mm, Here's the thing. We can't be generous toward other people without boundaries. Yes, Brene. Yes. Boom on the boundaries. 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 It's easy to miss, but the two women sitting to Brown's right in that scene are her real-life friends, Laura Mays and Karen Walren. Do people actually come up to her like, She's their best friend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she gets that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. She gets a lot of, um, I was afraid to come up to speak to you, but Brene Brown would tell me to be courageous. So I'm, this is me being courageous to come up and speak to yeah. you. Yeah. And does she go, boundaries? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, I've been thinking a lot about why the work resonates. And I think what people want the most is they, they, they don't want the lessons. They want to see me struggling with the lessons. Because, Are you still struggling? Oh, God, yes. The teacher is learning still? Oh, yes. I am the worst poster person for vulnerability in the world. Like, yes, I'm still struggling. I try to be honest about how hard it is, hmm. you know, and, and that I think it's worth it. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This was supposed to be the thick of the national treasure that is March Madness, the annual college basketball tournament. But on account of the novel coronavirus, the tournament was called off. The NBA also is suspended indefinitely. Tonight, though, an aspect to basketball not up in the air the undeniable impact of players from Africa. Success stories abound, yet those, sadly, are exceptions. Vast rosters of young players, first spotted on African playgrounds, sometimes simply for their height, are brought to the U.S. only to be victimized. During a year-long investigation, we followed the Africa to U.S. basketball trail. We found it littered with corrupt high schools and shadowy figures who mislead families, violate immigration rules, and even commit federal crimes. It's the great basketball wave, and it shows no signs of receding. Teams of all levels, high school, college, pro, men's and women's, filled with players from Africa. Most were recruited to come as teenagers. Consider seven foot six inch Taco Fall of Senegal, who, as a kid, didn't know much about basketball or the country where he was headed. I thought that the United States was like New York, like everywhere was like New York, big buildings and movie stars everywhere. Uh, so I was kind of excited um, just to see because I've, I've never been out of my country. Taco is an NBA rookie and with an irresistible personality to match his catchy name, a cult favorite. He toggles between the Boston Celtics and the Celtics minor league team in Portland, Maine winning fans wherever he goes. But his journey from Senegal eight years ago was not nearly as smooth. I was young, I was 16. Uh, I left my mom and my little brother and just leaving them once I got here was really, really tough. The men that brokered your coming here, did they do right by you? I will say that um, they try. His first stop was Texas, where recruiters promised him a scholarship. To get him into the country, Taco was given an I-20 F-1 visa a federal permission to study at a specific school. But when Taco arrived, the recruiters switched him to a different charter school, invalidating his visa. For some reason, there was an issue with the school we were supposed to go to. So if you don't go to the school you were supposed to go to, then that school can cancel your I-20. And then once they cancel your I-20, then you're not here legally. So you're, you're playing for a chartered school yeah. on a canceled visa. You're basically 
Yeah, we were. Illegally. Yeah, we didn't know. I, I can't imagine the stress yeah. of you, you may be deported. You may be sent back home. Absolutely. We found recruiters across the country who often double as the players' legal guardians, playing fast and loose with immigration rules. And we were surprised to learn from Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, that it falls on the kids to fix their visa status. You, you go to one school in Tennessee, and then you go to another in Georgia, sorry, can't help you. And then you go to another school in Orlando, mm -hmm. and they're able to solve this. They're able to solve it. The Orlando school helped Taco correct his I-20 visa, and he went on to play at the University of Central Florida before making it to the NBA. But he knows other African recruits who have had a rougher time of it. It's been many times where I feel like some people have been taken advantage of where they bring them here, then that's it. Then they just left for their own. And if things don't work out, then it's, they, they are pretty much screwed. Take the case of Blessing Ejiofor from Nigeria. At the age of 15, standing six foot five, she was recruited by a scout to come to the U.S. She was armed with an I-20 visa and promised a full scholarship at the Evelyn Mack Academy in North Carolina. What were you told about Evelyn Mack Academy? Nothing. I just got the I-20 and they were like, that's where you're going. And when you get to the airport, the coach is going to be there to pick you up. And do you go online and see this school in North Carolina? Yes, I did. I was a little bit curious about the team. And like the people, so yeah, I did, I went online. Looked like a nice place to go to school. Yes. This ornate building that Blessing saw online, turns out it was a borrowed image of MIT's iconic dome library. And that misleading website was the least of the lies, as Blessing found out as soon as her flight landed. Do you remember what happened when you got to JFK? Um, yeah, the, I saw the coach. He, um, he had Eastside High School. The coach that picked me up from Eastside High School. Yeah, Eastside High School. I'm like, okay, I'm supposed to go into Evelyn Mac Academy. Why is it Eastside High School? So you flew over expecting to go to school in North Carolina. You get off the plane in JFK, and they say, no, 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 you're going to Patterson, New Jersey instead. What was that like? I was young. I was excited to be here. I was like, okay. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go? I mean, I couldn't have argued with them. That's right. A 15-year-old crossed an ocean only to be intercepted at JFK by a coach she'd never met and told she was not going to North Carolina, but rather to Patterson, New Jersey. Coaches there were stacking their basketball teams with talented players from Africa like Blessing. And we found other schools nationwide bargaining for African basketball players. It's very much the Wild West in almost every sense of the phrase. Scott Rosner, sports management professor at Columbia University, told us about an entire culture of middlemen taking advantage of unsuspecting young athletes from Africa. What would motivate a recruiter, a coach, you say middleman, to do this to kids? Ultimately, it's all about the money flowing into the system, and they can monetize their connections and their place in the overall basketball world. In case after case, middlemen are after a cut of future earnings, as much as 40% in one contract we learned about. Bear in mind, the average NBA salary, it's now almost $8 million. It's pure, unbridled greed. Ultimately, in many cases, it's the young person who's being exploited, and it's certainly off of their labor uh, and, and their skill. How damaging is this to the kids involved? 
Oh, it's terrible for the kids involved. The, kid, the saddest stories are the ones who don't make it. The vast majority. The vast majority who do not make it really anywhere close to the NBA, and they've been sold on the dream that they can make it there. We went to North Carolina to investigate the Evelyn Mack Academy, the school that sponsored Blessing Edgefor's I-20 visa. Hi, I'm Evelyn Mack with Evelyn Mack Academy. A former police officer, Evelyn Mack housed her namesake academy in this low-slung building, not at MIT. Only 50 kids went to her school, yet she issued visas for more than 75 international students, arousing suspicions of U.S. Homeland Security investigators. Evelyn Mack um, had a school, and she applied for it and received uh, authorization from the uh, Department of Homeland Security to admit foreign students. Assistant U.S. Attorney Kenny Smith prosecuted a case against Mack in 2018 for conspiracy to harbor aliens. She pled guilty, her school shuttered overnight, and she is now serving 18 months in federal prison. So she filled out paperwork so that students from Africa could come to the school? Yes, Africa and other countries. Who was asking her to do this? There were basketball coaches, there were basketball recruiters, and they went to um, Evelyn Mack to use the authorization she had um, received. So these are middlemen who say, I I've got to get that player to the U.S., how am I going to do it? And Evelyn Mack was the answer. And for $1,000, she agreed to file I-20s and help get these students into the United States. In all, Mack took $75,000 for issuing visas and then looking the other way when coaches and middlemen steered most of the students to other schools across the country. Do you have a sense of how many other people were involved in this? We do not. The federal judge sentencing Mac was skeptical that this 69-year-old stood atop a basketball recruiting scheme. Like us, he wondered why the government wasn't going after the people who bought her visas, saying she had a co-conspirator on every one of those crimes, all 75 of them. I do not like the fact that these coaches are not being brought in. One coach mentioned again and again in this case... Eris Hines. We found multiple players who said Hines recruited them to the Evelyn Mack Academy and became their legal guardian, only to leave them in a crowded house while he lived hours away. One of those athletes, Suli Dumbia of the Ivory Coast, spoke to us from overseas by video chat. How did it come to be that you came to the U.S.? Who brought you here? Um, it's, a, it's one dude called Eris Hines. He live in North Carolina. He's the one who helped me out. Standing six foot eleven, Suli came to the U.S. at age sixteen, filled with hope. What were you told about the Evelyn Mack Academy? I was told I was going to be good school. I was going to get education. I was going to have good basketball training and everything. But Suli says when he arrived, the education was inferior and the classes were irregular. He says the school began asking him to pay tuition, and when he complained, he was threatened to have his passport taken away. He says Hines didn't help. He really caused, by putting me in a really bad situation, so I don't want to go do anything with him anymore. A background search on Eris Hines revealed that across multiple states, he was involved with dubious academies and housing in shabby conditions, large numbers of young athletes, both foreign and American. We also spoke to police sources in North Carolina. They say Hines took more than $27,000 from eight families of athletes, promising education and basketball scholarships that he never delivered. 
Some families say he also lied to them about his credentials and where their kids were attending school. These claims were the basis of eight charges in state court leveled against Hines. A new district attorney was elected and the charges were dropped. Hines moved to Texas. Today, he advertises himself as an elite basketball coach. We found him still working with teens at a Texas community center. In our initial correspondence with Hines, he proclaimed his innocence, calling allegations against him the same old justice system conspiracy. And Hines agreed to an interview with 60 Minutes. We arranged for him to come to New York, but an hour before the appointed time, he canceled. So we found him outside his Manhattan hotel. We were going to ask you about Evelyn Mack Academy. Oh, I don't, I don't know nothing about that. You don't know anything about Evelyn Mack Academy? I ain't got nothing to say about that. You have nothing to say about Evelyn no, Mack Academy? No, because I had no dealings with her. So. We talked to a lot of kids and a lot of people that have yeah. said that you let them down. Talk hold about on, that. Hold on. That, that, that couldn't be true. That couldn't be true? No, that couldn't be true. That's cute. That got to be, that got to be false. In the wake of the Evelyn Mack Academy mess, the students were uprooted and most had to return to their home countries. Who is monitoring these schools as they grant so many international visas? That falls to ICE. Asked about the abuse of the student visa system, they told us they investigate suspicious situations, resulting in both criminal sentences and civil sanctions. But in the cases we investigated, nobody appears to have been looking out for the well-being of the kids brought here for their athletic skills. As for some of the players we followed, Blessing Ejifor had to return to Nigeria because of her mishandled visa, but she was able to author a happier chapter. She made it back and is now a starter at West Virginia. Suli Dumbia just made it back to the U.S. as well and is playing at Navarro College in Texas. Taco Fall told us he wants to play a leadership role in cleaning up the same sports pipeline he traveled. In the NBA off-seasons, he plans to return to Africa to talk to players and their families about the U.S. recruitment process. What would you tell the 16-year-olds in Africa today about differentiating between the good guys and the bad guys? It's hard. Um, it's hard to do, especially when you're back home and people come and sell you a dream. It's hard to turn it down. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. These past weeks serve as reminders to Americans, not only of our body's vulnerabilities, but of our spirit's resilience to adversity. As we saw at the top of our broadcasts, it's in the quiet bravery of nurses and doctors, our police officers and EMTs, of firefighters and pharmacists, of grocery clerks and the others who go out to work when so many are sheltering at home. They do it not because they're unafraid, but because of their sense of duty. Their sense of service to the rest of us is stronger than their fear. In these days of pandemic, that makes them heroes. They deserve every thank you we can offer. I'm Leslie Stahl. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. 
It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. So you're always on the go. Now you can take the CBS Mornings with you. And we want to go wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews on the CBS Mornings On The Go podcast. Listen to CBS Mornings On The Go ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. 